Gentiles had all also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to the uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain to them, step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. It was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners. And it came close to me. And as I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, By no means, Lord. Nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time the voice answered from heaven. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where they were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the, the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized him with water. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was, who was I that I could hinder God? Then they heard this. When they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God saying, Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. The word of the Lord. I just want to speak to you on the subject of God on God's own terms. God on God's own terms. And a subtitle could be Peter's question, or more so a statement, which is, that I could hinder God? It's the question that he asked. Could I really hinder God? I want to start by going back to when I was a child. There was a TV show that was on from 1984 to 1992. And it starred Tony Danza. His name was Tony Mitchell in the show. He co-starred with Judith, Judith Light. Her character's name was Angela Bauer. So here's the deal. You had Tony and his daughter, Sam. Tony was trying to raise Sam all by himself. He was a retired baseball player. And then he became the housekeeper for this breadwinning, powerful woman, businesswoman. She wore power suits. And Angela had a son named Jonathan. Now, here's the dichotomy, right? Who's in charge? 
Because you got this former hey, tough guy, you Tony. He's, he's this kind of, you know, uh, former baseball player, and he comes into the house, and even though he's the housekeeper, a lot of times Tony finds himself kind of playing that fatherly role to Jonathan, Angela's son. And uh, Angela becomes a mother to Sam. But the tension of the show, and I think why people liked it, is because really the question was, and this was a big title or topic in the 80s, right? You had Charles in charge, and there was a lot of shows kind of aimed at this question. Who's really in control? Who's, Who's really holding the reins here? And the sitcom was very funny, became very popular among the people. And here's why I think that happened. I think it's because we can all relate to this question of who holds ultimate authority? Who's really in control? Um, when you're at work, and the, we were talking about this yesterday, and the boss isn't there, sometimes it feels good, sometimes it doesn't feel good because there's always somebody who thinks it's their role to step in and become the new person in charge, right? And so uh, there's that expression, when the cat's away, the... Right. So that happens at work. But one of the most humorous examples of this to me is when I see my children uh, upstairs they'll be playing or playing amongst themselves and I'll hear one say to the other and I guess they both get a dollar because I'm mentioning both of them so I'll just say it. Maudie says to John Luke you're not the boss of me right? and you hear this among kids all the time you're not the boss of me, you're not in control we are all familiar with ambiguous what I'll, what I'll call ambiguous lordship who's really in control who will be the arbiter between right and wrong, who's in and who's out What's clean? What's not clean? Who is God working with right now? What's, who's the spirit bringing in to our community? And then who's making us feel a little bit disgusted that we'd rather keep out? Who's the them in your life? Who are the ones that you feel have no place in the church? Now, you would say the pious self that you are. JP, I don't think there's anybody that I would say doesn't belong. But... We all have a group that presses our buttons. We all have a group of people who we think they're really on the outside. And you got this guy named Peter. Peter was an ordinary Jew who chose to, who God chose to play a significant role in the mission of the church. And he finds himself in the hot seat, and here's why. The Jerusalem church comes up to him and they say, Just who do you think you are? What are you doing in the Acts text that we read? What are you doing? You're fellowshipping with? These uncircumcised Gentiles? In the Greek, it literally means they were disgusted. It it was repulsive to them. Why would Peter eat with these folks? Why would he fellowship with them? Why would he bring them in? Why would he commune with them, these uncircumcised, disgusting outsiders? On what grounds, Peter, do you have the right? And, And here's what's happening, right? Who's the boss? Who's really in charge? Because we are the arbitrators of God. And we say that these folks are on the outside and they have no place on the inside. And here's what they use, like many Christians. They use the Bible. Because if you go to Leviticus, you can clearly see Leviticus chapter 1 through 11 tells you that what Peter did was a violation of God's will. It was a violation of what God told them to do. And so these people are armed with the Bible. They have the truth. They use the Bible to create an insider-outsider dichotomy. They use the Bible to create an us-versus-them mindset. And they're disgusted with Peter because they have the Bible and they knew everything there was to know about God's laws, God's laws. 
But Peter throws a wrench into it. And Peter says, I didn't do this. God did this. God brought them in. These repulsive ones, these disgusting ones, they're actually the ones that God loves. And the Spirit is bringing these folks into the church. God is free to be God. God decides to bring these ones in. And the proof that Peter has is that he has a vision. So this is crazy, but I really think Peter was a contemplative Christian because here he is praying on the roof in Joppa. And he's, the, the scripture says he's in a trance. I yearn for more people to have trance-like prayers. I want to hear some stories in our community Sacred stories of people saying, JP, it was wild, man. I was praying at home, and all of a sudden, I just got in a trance. It was like I was back in my teenagers. In my teenage years, I don't know what I was tripping on, but it was awesome. Something happened. And, of course, we know what it was. The Holy Spirit, through the power of the unsearchable God, brings Peter into a trance-like state. And I love this text. He sees this sheet coming down from heaven. And on the sheet, there are all these critters and creatures. I mean, stuff that really is disgusting, but, but creepy, crawly things and things that you weren't supposed to eat as a Jew. And then God says something weird. He tells Peter, Peter, get up, kill and eat. And Peter says, hey, God, let me help you out a little bit. Let, let me just help you be God, right? And this is what all of us do. <laughs> He says, by no means, Lord, because nothing unclean, nothing profane has ever entered into my mouth. And God says back to Peter, hey, Pete, who's the boss? Pete, who's in control? Who's the arbiter? Are you the one who decides what's clean or unclean? He says, what I call clean, nobody should ever call unclean. What I've made clean, you must not call profane. And the agent in all of this is the Holy Spirit. You see the Holy Spirit mentioned over and over again. The Spirit does this. The Spirit brings them in. The Spirit baptizes these folks just like we were. And the ones we were once disgusted with, repulsed by, the Spirit brings them in. And then Peter says something powerful. He says, who am I? Who was I? He tells the church in Jerusalem, who was I to hinder God? So let me try to make my way out of here. Here's what I think is happening. And this is the quote that you actually have in your liturgy today. This is a quote from, is it Mudge? The Mudge quote. What a great name. A change of heart comes when one sees the Spirit. Listen to the language here. When one sees the Spirit at work in the stories of strangers, recognizing in them the same Spirit that is working in one's own life. People need first to see God at God's surprising work. Theological reflection comes afterward, either to bring what has been seen into coherence with the past, with past thinking, or to make a reason break with that thinking. Now, here's what I think he's saying. If you're faithful enough to not determine what's God's will... Because you're, you're, you're going to let God be God like Peter. If who, who am I to hinder? If that becomes your disposition, then whoever you see God doing a work in, whatever group it is, I don't care how repulsed or disgusted you are by that group. The minute the Spirit starts to do a work in that group, 
It is your responsibility and my responsibility not to use the Bible to figure out a reason to get that group out of here, to clean this up. That's not our job. Our job is let me rethink the Bible so that I can understand this has been God's desire the whole time. Because we got Leviticus, we have Leviticus, but it obviously needs to be, we need to rethink how we view Leviticus. That's what the Jerusalem church had to do. They were biblicists who had to unlearn their biblicism, bibliolatry, right? They had to rethink how they read Leviticus, and actually you find out later in Acts that that's exactly what they did. They went back and had a council and said, hey guys, we were wrong about this. Lord, let this happen more in your church. May we always be willing to step back and say, who's God bringing in? Why do we feel repulsed and disgusted by them? And how can we change our theology so that we can be faithful to what the Spirit is doing? That's our job. It's hard. It's hard work. And a lot of times it actually means that we have to rethink our God ideas and be humble enough to admit that nobody owns the collector set of God ideas. And when that happens, maybe we could just maybe step into some form of faithfulness and continuity with the Spirit. Here's the point. Either we can use theology to falsely empower us as arbiters of God, determining who's in and who's out, or we can let God be God and witness the Spirit as the Spirit draws all people in. And when it happens... To the people we once considered to be outsiders, the ones who we once found to be repulsive and disgusting, well, whoever they are, them, when the Spirit brings them in, it's time for us to adjust our theology. The Spirit told me, this is what Peter said, yeah, yeah, guys, I've read Leviticus just like you. But the Spirit told me, Not to make a distinction. I love this text. This is literally what he said. Not to make a distinction between us and them. Don't make that distinction. Now, I I know you guys are very smart. And you can read right between the lines that I'm preaching. Whoever they are. Whoever they are. Hear the word of the Lord. Don't make a distinction. An ecclesial distinction. A sociological distinction. Any kind of distinction that would set you apart from them, that would make you feel superior, better, more clean. The Spirit says, don't make that distinction. And recognize that the image of God is in every single human being. That they carry within themselves a dignity that cannot be taken away no matter who they are or where they come from, and when the Spirit starts to bring them in to these sacred spaces and these sacred communities, you're going to have a tendency to go back to Leviticus or whatever pet verse you have, whatever pet scripture you want. You're going to have the tendency to arm yourself with the Bible. But the Spirit is saying to the church right now, do not make a distinction Between them and us. Us and them. You're not the boss, Tony. See the Spirit's work, to quote Mudge. See the Spirit's work in strangers. And here's, let me just stop for a second. We need a neo-Pentecostalism 
to sweep the church today. A lot of folks are talking about me right now in an unfaithful way. And some of them are saying he's left his Pentecostal roots. Let me just take a minute and share with you from my heart. I haven't left anything. I've gone deeper in my heart and in my soul. And here's what's at the heart of Pentecostal piety. Here's what's at the heart of Pentecostal spirituality. We are a people who are willing to be surprised by God. That's the heart of it. James K.A. Smith says the distinguishing factor of Pentecostal piety, of Pentecostal spirituality, is a people who are willing to be surprised by God. And when God surprises you, you will soon find out that the very people I was trying to keep out, he's trying to bring in. The very people that I didn't want in the community, he's saying, no, let them come in. Because what I've called clean, this was not, the vision wasn't about food, folks. The vision was about these Gentiles, these uncircumcised Gentiles. And God says what I've called clean, the people I'm doing a work and I'm drawing everybody in. That's the text, right? Look look at what we've been reading. If you look at the Revelation text, it's all these people, every nation, every tribe. Isn't that wonderful? And then then in the gospel, we're told that you got to love one another. And everybody says, okay, that's beautiful. I like that language. I like that idea. But then Jesus adds a little clause to that. And he says, as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? We who were outsiders, he went to the cross to bring us in. I'm, I'm starting to shout. This is my Pentecostal side coming up. Let me say it in a more sacramental tone. The means of grace give us an imagination that allows us to see the work of the Spirit in the lives of people that we never thought the Spirit would ever do a work in. But He draws us in. And you and I were once those people. We who were, the scripture says, at enmity with God. He has brought us in, torn down the wall. I love it when Jesus was crucified, curtains ripped. I love it when Jesus was crucified, courts and temple courts and and curtains were, were, were shifted, torn in two. Because the Spirit's work is to bring people in. We miss God when we make him in our own image, we miss God when we want God on our own terms, and we miss God when we only accept him in ways that we think he ought to come. You guys have heard this story before. I don't want to reiterate a a, a story that you've heard often, but I'll, I'll put a different spin on it. There was a guy, and a flood came and overwhelmed his house, right? And the floodwaters began to rise and rise and rise. And he went up to the top of his house. He dropped down on his knees and he said, Oh God, the flood is coming. Please save me. Please save me, God. Amen. A few minutes later, a boat came by. And the guy in the boat says, Hey, buddy, come on, come on, get in the boat. I got you. And the gentleman says to the man in the boat, It's okay. God will save me. And the guy in the boat says, all right. He leaves. Here comes an emergency worker with a jet ski. A few minutes later, the emergency crew says to the man, dude, come on, get on. And the guy on top of his roof says, it's okay. God will save me. The jet ski guy says, whatever, leaves. Finally, a helicopter comes. It's hovering above the house, and a guy shuts down, We're going to lower a bucket. Get in it. We got you. 
And the guy shouts back out, God will save me. And the helicopter leaves. And the guy dies. And he goes to heaven. When he gets to heaven, he's mad with God. And he says to God, why didn't you save me? And God says to the man, you idiot. I sent you a boat, a jet ski, and a helicopter. And this guy couldn't see how God was saving him because he wanted God on his own terms. He wanted God to save him the way he thought he deserved to be saved. And when God sent all these other different ways, the man rejected it. And if the cross, if the cross teaches us anything, it's that we do not recognize God's salvation when it comes to us. We have people shouting, save us. And they don't even see how God is doing that very thing. And they travel from Hosanna to crucify him. They, they, they shift their... Because God saved them in a way that they couldn't recognize. I was talking to a wonderful friend of mine. i got to be careful what I say. Let me just put it to you this way. We've got a lot of people in the church who are asking God for healing. But my brothers and sisters, if we ask God for healing, but we only receive that healing on our own terms, we will miss God's healing. Healing can come through the community of faith. Healing can come through good doctors and nurses and a medical staff that just give you grace upon grace. Healing can come when our minds begin to change, even though our circumstances do not. Healing comes to us in many ways, and God sends boats, and he sends jet skis, and he sends helicopters. But if you only define healing in one form, you're probably going to miss it. Is this making sense? We miss God when we determine the means by which he comes. We want salvation, but when salvation is sent, we crucify that salvation. We want healing, and when healing is sent... We reject it because we are only seeking a healing that is defined by our own terms. We want provision. I don't know how to close this. Maybe my encouragement to you is look, be like Peter and, and be open to God's surprising nature. Look for God. Be open to the way God moves. Be open to the Spirit. The theme song from Who's the Boss says there's a there's a path that's open and a road not taken. The choice is up to you, my friends. The nights are long, but you might awaken to a brand new life, brand new life, brand new life around the bend. And the flute comes in. Okay. What I like about the message is there's a new life awaiting you when you're open to what the Spirit is doing. It'll probably mean that you're not the boss anymore. But who are we to hinder God? Thank you for listening to the Sacred Commons podcast. You can find out more about us at our website, thesacredcommons.com. If you feel connected to this ministry in any way, we appreciate your support. We appreciate your partnership. It helps us continue to do this work in the city of Youngstown, where we are happy to be launching a new church plant. Finally, why don't you come and join us for a service? 323 Wick Avenue at the beautiful St. John's Episcopal Church. We meet in the chapel. 
Come and worship with us. We'd love to see you there. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.